From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Lots going on in these markets, especially in the commodities markets. Um, you are seeing natural gas futures certainly higher, especially here in the United States. Natural gas up 4.8%. That is significant because we've seen all this volatility in the European side, the U.S. side, not as developed of a market. Nevertheless, up just shy of 5%. Yeah, there's certainly been a lot of volatility in energy markets. And I think the question here also is what is going to be in the next leg, not like the stock market lower, but the next leg higher right, for exactly. a lot of these oil and other energy markets. Yeah, we're looking at oil at 104. When you look at Brent, there is no better expert to talk to about this within Bloomberg Intelligence. Fernando Valley, thank you as always for joining us. We got to talk about these Russia issues, Bulgaria, Poland. But before we do that, I have a very important question to ask you. Have you seen Mamma Mia? I have not. I mean, I saw the movie back in the day with Pierce Brosnan, but not the show. Noted. All right. Well, Fernando, we appreciate that. Uh, don't worry. It'll all make sense in about eight minutes while I ask that question. Uh, but Fernando, let's talk about these headlines coming out of Russia. Essentially, natural gas flows halted to Poland and Bulgaria. Germany, very vocal about perhaps supporting a oil ban if it's gradual why are oil prices not jumping on those headlines? I think the, the biggest concern is what's happening with China and the lockdowns that we're seeing throughout um, throughout the eastern part of the country, how that will repercuss in, uh, in, in supply chains and in consumption. <clears throat> the Chinese consumption of oil has already decreased, but if we see more inflation because of supply chain disruptions in the rest of the world, uh, that really uh, puts a puts a, a, a hammer blow to to consumption uh, of oil and and gas uh, globally. Speaking of global oil and gas, perhaps you can give us a, a way to frame the thinking here. As the world, so much of Europe tries to turn away from Russian energy. What progress? What might we see in in the nearer term? Well, it's very challenging in in the short term to turn completely off Russian gas, uh, specifically because it's so difficult to, to move gas uh, across oceans. You have to liquefy it. It's a very costly, uh, and it takes time to build out more capacity. Um, oil is a little bit uh, easier, but as, as Vladimir Putin is already showing you, he's not going to let you cut oil without cutting gas. So you're you're going to be in a tough spot. Uh, if, if you if you give up natural gas in the short term. Today, uh, European inventories are only around 26% of capacity. Uh, 
Uh, Brussels wants to fill it up to 80%. Javier Blas had a nice piece on it today um, about it. And it, the, the only way to get to 80% and be prepared in case of a very cold winter in Europe or a, a winter without a lot of wind power uh, would be to fill the, those inventories up and you would need Russian gas to do that. There's only so much that U.S. Uh, liquefied natural gas can do in the short term or even Qatari and uh, Australian. Uh, we just don't have the, the spot cargoes to, to, to reach uh, that level of capacity for Europe without relying at least in part on Russian gas. Fernando, let's put the oil piece of the equation on ice for a second, just given we're looking at 104 on Brent, literally a down one-tenth of 1%. That is not the kind of oil volatility we've seen. I'm very focused on the natural gas piece because, like I said, at the top of the segment, Russia now halting those gas flows to Poland, Bulgaria, claiming that it's because they're not paying in rubles. You do, of course, have other European buyers also agreeing to pay in rubles, just given that dependence. And for our U.S. audience, the significance of natural gas in Europe is so important to underscore because this is how they heat their homes. If anyone's ever been to London in the winter, you will understand why this is such a big deal. If you don't have natural gas to heat your homes, that's going to be a problem going into the end of this year. Now, we know a lot of these European authorities have said they're trying to reduce Russian dependence by the end of the year. Dan Jurgen, uh, an oil historian and natural gas historian, I should say, has said, that plan by the end of the year seems intangible. He's looking at a five-year um, kind of time frame. Fernando, my question to you is where the United States natural gas exports fits into this. You mentioned the infrastructure is hard. You have to essentially take natural gas, liquefy it, ship it on this tanker across the Atlantic Ocean. But we don't really have this market for it in the U.S. How long does it take to build out that market so that the U.S. can come and provide those exports that Russia can no longer provide? Well, I think you, you framed it beautifully. And I think, uh, you know, you, you'll take at least uh, five years to see a, a significant increase in capacity. We have some capacity that's being built. Um, unfortunately, uh, the way that we had trended with the energy transition, we've have made it more difficult to build natural gas pipelines. Today, a lot of our capacity sits in Louisiana, for example, that doesn't have a significant natural gas production anymore. Uh, and you'd have to bring that from Oklahoma or from Texas um, and, and other regions. So we need to develop the inside infrastructure as well. And that will mean a reversal of some of the recent push to make pipelines more difficult to be built. Um, it will also likely mean that we need to expedite the regulatory process for some of, uh, of these uh, LNG plants uh, so we can build them more quickly uh, and get them to the market. The, the beauty is that we have a significant resources of natural gas throughout the U.S. Uh, we have the Marcellus in Ohio, uh, Western Pennsylvania, and so forth. Uh, we have the Permian in West Texas, and we have several other plays that can give us significant supply, and, and so does Canada. So we could be long-term providers, uh, not just to Europe, but to other parts of the world, and in fact, um, natural gas has been the biggest reason why we've decreased uh, we decreased uh, emissions globally, the switch from coal to natural gas. So it's really an important part of the energy transition. And I think in three to five years, we could make it also a significant part of energy security. Fascinating stuff. Fernando Valley, and for those of you who are listening, I did promise a Mamma Mia reference. I threw Fernando off at the beginning and said, uh, <laughs> did you listen to it? Fernando, it's one of my favorite films, but I think how you framed this oil and gas 
kind of conflict is so significant. Fernando Valley of Bloomberg Intelligence, we thank you as always. Shanali, this is all going to make sense in 30 seconds. Our radio listeners are being like, I know where you're going with this. I know, but I have a surprise and I want you guys to just stick with me for 30 seconds. But I think what's so significant about the other stuff that Fernando was really talking about is that we're caught. It's a catch-22 in terms of ramping up these exports when Europe is kind of running down the clock. You know, I think the Bloomberg headline on this makes everything wrapped up in just one sentence, making energy a weapon. And truly in this war, energy has become one. And it really comes down to the currency picture as well. We know the ruble weakening. A lot of the funds in these payments are supposed to be happening in rubles, according to those Russian authorities. The dollar still stronger, folks. We're looking at DXY 103 handle. These technical levels are something to watch. Euro weakness, Japanese weak, yen weakness. I told you the ABBA reference would make sense. Thanks for sticking with me for those of you who did. We're dancing. We're dancing to Fernando by ABBA, a prominent song in Mamma Mia. We, of course, appreciate Fernando Valley's intelligence and grateful that he was named Fernando. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Tech earnings dominating the conversation when it comes to the stock market. We had Microsoft, we had Alphabet, we get Meta after the bell, Amazon and, and Apple as well coming in tomorrow. Anurag Arana, senior software analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence, joins us right here from the Interactive Broker Studio. Anurag, you had some brilliant comments about the liquidity picture of some of these big tech names. That used to be such a, a positive for, for, for a lot of these companies, especially in this idea of kind of weathering a lot of these inflation pressures, supply chain pressures. Well, don't worry about it. Apple has so much money on their balance sheets to cushion that blow. Now kind of a negative, perhaps, in this inflationary environment. So, I mean, if you think about it, a lot of these tech companies have massive powers in terms of to counter inflation for their products. So from that point, I'm not concerned. I think the concern comes in when investor expectations are not met in some of these areas. Now, one of the things I've said is I think it is ludicrous to think about that big tech is not immune to any global slowdown. I I really never understand why people think that. However, they still fare better than an average S&P company because the products that they sell, I would say majority of these large companies, is critical to the client base. So from that point, like, you know, look at Microsoft's results yesterday. Now, if they would have slowed down by just two or three percent, the stock would have been off quite a bit. And that's the part I don't understand because eventually it will slow down. Right. Well, speaking of the slowdown, 
you definitely are not seeing that in Microsoft stock today, right? So what does this mean in terms of what can be expected from a firm like Microsoft where cloud is king in the next couple of quarters? So from that point, I still think the top line is going to slow down. Tougher comparisons, these businesses as they become big, the law of large number kicks in. You cannot grow these businesses, I mean the cloud business for example for Microsoft, at the rate of 45 to 50% forever is just not you know, possible from a just simple math point of view. But other, th other areas are a little bit more resistant. Now, if office grew 12%, let's say, it's going to grow 8%. So what? It's still growing. I mean, that's the part I don't get. You, me, and I think a lot of bullish uh, tech investors at the moment, I'm curious about the M&A of it all because Microsoft has also very notably uh, created this Activision deal. I think I want to say over $70 billion off the top of my head. Is it going to do more, right? You have this incentive to spend the money. A five-year-old could tell you that if your dollar is worth less tomorrow, you buy that lollipop today. <laughs> what is the Microsoft equivalent of that lollipop? It's it's a very, very good question. And I always wonder that when the regulators are going to get to Microsoft also, because sooner or later they will. Um, they are the one company that have been able to acquire um, companies while the others are a little bit more cautious. So then begs the question, well, what do you do with the 60, 65 billion free cash flow that you're generating? Either you pay as dividend, which is, yes, it'll happen a little bit, but the bulk of that in our view is gonna go to buybacks. Anurag Grana, senior software analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence. We keep throwing curveballs at him and he keeps knocking it out of the park. As Tom Keen would say, that's as close to baseball as I get. Shanali. <laughs> I don't watch baseball, but I do love watching Microsoft <laughs> today. It is a fascinating story and we thank Anurag for being here. Yeah, and you know, it, I, I think it's also a, a huge deal to just talk about, can you actually compose or I just transpose what you're seeing in Microsoft and Alphabet to these other tech companies at the end of the day. Um, they're so different when it comes to their business uh, models, when it comes to their supply chains, when it comes to their cash picture, there is simply just a lot going on. We're of course gonna keep you updated on all of that, all the stock moves. These markets folks is I mean, they're just really something to witness here. Volatility here, the VIX handle at a 32. The story isn't about do you play tech, do you not play tech, are valuations too high, not too high. A lot of the conversation is what do you do if you have recession, the word recession in your vocabulary, whether you're in Europe, whether you're in China, or whether you're right here in the United States, cushioned by some of that stimulus that's really been perhaps keeping the economy afloat for a while. We're gonna ask all these questions to our very own guest here. Um, give me a second. Alex Shaloff, co-head of investment strategies coming from Bernstein Private Wealth Management. Alex, I'm confused. Why are stocks dropping? Why is tech dropping if they're the haven in this storm of inflation and growth? Pretty, it's all about what's going on in the interest rate market. Clearly, the Fed has a, a monumental task ahead of them. They've got to slow inflation by raising rates, but they can't go enough that they put the U.S. into recession. And that's what investors are most concerned about. It's that balance. Can they get it right? Why don't you tell me, can they get it right? It's hard. I don't want to say that there's a high degree of confidence. That's clearly what the market's pricing in, is that there's a lot of doubt, skepticism about uh, can they nail it. The, the real question, frankly, is what happens if they, if they get it wrong? 
do they are they able to, to pull it back fast enough um, to correct themselves? Uh, is frankly a very short recession? Could that be the answer to solve the inflation problem? A lot of question marks. That's part of the reason why you're seeing the markets behave the way that they are, not just the equity markets, by the way. There's been a lot of stress and turmoil in the fixed income markets as well. So I think that the, the answer is remains to be seen, but clearly the market is saying no. But I, okay, so walk us through that. For folks who perhaps don't watch the minute-to-minute ticks of the bond market, what does getting it wrong look like in a market that perhaps is getting more and more hawkish than the actual Federal Reserve is itself? There's so much conversation about markets, investors getting ahead of what Chairman Powell is even thinking. If you're pricing in these moves and then the Fed executes, what's the problem here? Where could this go wrong? That you are you nailed it in the idea that the market is is hypersensitive to every single word that Chair Powell says, and on multiple occasions, if you really read between the lines, he's telling us relax, everybody, just relax. Um, he he understands the the stress of the moment and how each one of these signals that he provides to the market is stressed 150 different ways. Um, what could it look like if he gets it wrong? If if the Fed moves too much on the overnight rate, I think you'll see continued stress in the the fixed income markets. You know, a 10-year today at 275 neighborhood. You know, there there's a school of thought that says we end the year with a 10-year at 275. And while we continue to push short rates up, that's a much flatter yield curve. So there's a lot of investment opportunity that's created with a flat yield curve when you're when you're going to a, a flattener. There's things called, um, you know, you talk about people not paying attention minute by minute, so maybe this is too inside baseball, but you've got a bear flattener that, that could be um, uh, cause damage in the bond market. You've got a bull flattener. You have all kinds of different approaches. The point is, though, interest rates are going up. The market is probably priced well in advance. We've priced in six, 12 months from now. And and that's why the bond market actually provides an interesting investment opportunity on a go-forward basis, because you've already taken the hit. You've already paid the price of admission, if you will. And now, as you sit back and clip yields that are much higher than they were six months ago, it's actually an interesting place to put capital. So 275 by the end of the year, which is actually exactly where we are right now on the 10-year. We are exactly at 275. I'm curious, though, what the catalyst is to turn around some of this selling. Remember, we're coming off of a pretty, I think, a historically bad quarter for bonds in terms of sell-offs. And you just made the call, the I guess the, I guess the bull case for bonds. But what is the catalyst we're waiting for when it comes to equities in an environment, I might add, where we're seeing a much, much stronger dollar? There's a number of catalysts. Uh, for the equity market. And maybe this is a little bit of a contrarian call, but I think there's... I love contrarian calls. Okay, here we go. Um, I would say jobs. Watch the jobs number. That job openings is a huge uh, piece of information that we don't think is getting a lot of attention, and it should. There are some 11 million open positions. There's some 6.5 million people looking for that. That spread, that differential uh, between open positions and people looking for positions, if you go back over history and adjust it for for population inflation, it's never been higher. So that's a big number. You can't have a recession when you have this many open jobs. Two, supply chain disruption. What if we are closer than many people suspect 
to solving the supply chain disruption. If you look at congestion in ports, this is interesting. I, I'm on the West Coast, so I look at L.A. and Long Beach. We're down from the peak from the number of uh, container ships at uh, uh, Long Beach and L.A. But what's interesting is there's a new category called slow speed steaming. This came from our global logistics research group. Right. And this is we've never seen more ships hanging around uh, under uh, slow power. If you think about the slowdown that's happening in China, I shouldn't say slowdown, the shutdown, right. the zero COVID shutdown, what if they're going to stop production and stop sending us cargo ships that we can't even unload anyways, and we're able to work through this excess inventory right. and then have them rebuild it? So we could be on the other side of the supply chain disruption as well. Alex Shaloff with The Contrarian Call. We thank him as always for his time. We're going to have you back soon. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Let's bring in Anna Wong, chief U.S. economist for Bloomberg Economics. Anna, thank you so much for joining us. Where do we go from here in terms of the strength of the American consumer? I felt like the narrative really the summer of 2021, so about maybe six, nine months ago, was this is when the effects of fiscal stimulus is going to wear off. This is when you're going to see that deceleration in consumer spending. Are we there yet? I don't think we are there yet. So uh, American um, household balance sheet is at a, a 40-year low. And even though it's true that some of those savings are being run down and uh, the, the impact of those uh, fiscal stimulus checks would be wearing out, it's still, still, American households have the uh, runway on their balance sheet to either uh, continue to uh, or expand credit because the uh, real interest rate, in fact, is still negative because interest rate is still uh, below inflation. And also that um, uh, uh, for the um, top 40, 60 percentile in terms of uh, income, uh, those households still have a lot of excess savings. And those are the ones who are pivoting toward more vacations, uh, consumer and restaurants going out to movie theaters. Uh, so, so there's still a lot of consumption um, gas, if you will, in, in the U.S. economy. You know, I'm going to steal a line from Critty because she said it a few times and it makes me laugh. The China of it all. What about the lockdowns that are happening that you see in China and then also kind of these renewed fears about COVID? How might that start to throw um, things here in the U.S. off the track it's on? Yeah, so, I, you know, the biggest risk to the U.S. economy indeed is co coming from abroad, from both China and Europe. China's lockdown uh, has two effects. On inflation. On one hand, it's very inflationary because of the uh, renewed supply chain bottleneck. But on the other hand, China is a 
huge commodity demand uh, nation in, in, in the whole world. It accounts for over 50% of demand for a lot of commodities categories. So for Chinese GDP growth to plunge, like what, what we are seeing right now, means that commodity prices ahead would be falling, or, or, or at least there would be a disinflationary force on uh, commodities to fall. Whereas uh, um, on the other side, you know, the, the lockdown would be inflationary. So on net, what is the impact on U.S. especially? It, de- it depends on whether U.S. demand for goods, especially goods produced by China, is softening. And we have been seeing signs since the end of February that uh, U.S. household demand of cars or and uh, or, uh, of furnishing, household furnishings, uh, apparels, you know, electronics, stuff that China produces is being is softening. And part of that is related to the fact that demand is rotating from goods uh, to services. And uh, we have like, we have bought too much electronics over the last few years working from home. And now we're going back to office. We have less need for that. So that means that whatever sh- inflationary shock coming from China's lockdown would produce a smaller pass-through than the same degree of, um, you know, uh, lockdown that we had seen last year. So there's 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 reasons to be optimistic, slightly more optimistic about this round of supply chain shocks from China. Well, let's bring in the other major risk, right? The war in Ukraine here. I believe we had some headlines come out this morning. Germany ready to support the EU ban on Russian oil if it's gradual. This is something that you heard the French finance minister, Bruno Le Maire, very vocal about a couple weeks ago. You also heard on the back of that, uh, J.P. Morgan calling for $185 on oil. And I was at Sarah Week a month, about, about a month ago, essentially one of the largest energy conferences in the world. We were talking about some of these oil ministers from around the world, and they were looking at $200 oil, $300 oil, potentially on the table, not their base case, but potentially on the table. What does that do to American GDP? Yeah, so, so if oil indeed surged to 185, 200, then we'll be seeing a CPI inflation headline of 9, 10%. And that will make the, the Fed uh, much more hawkish. There have been talks last week about, um, you know, by one of the FOMC participants, um, flirting with the, the talks of 75 bips uh, rate hike. So if if that kind of scenario comes to pass with oil at $200 per barrel, 75 bips become a distinct possibility later this year. And of course, that would squeeze the U.S. economy much more. But still, um, Bloomberg Economics sees the chance of recession in the next 12 months as being very, very low because of the, for the reasons that I have said earlier, that household balance sheets are still very solid. You know, I'm wondering also, we're talking about the risk of recession, and even if it's further off than it was, you know, to some before, what about stagflation, Anna? How much is that a worry, and how much does that start to impact both economic conditions and market conditions? You know, stagflation, um, if we're thinking about a stagflation that's uh, where where growth is up 1%, um, between 0 to 1%, and uh, inflation at current rate, I still think that I still think that it wouldn't be um, a uh, it still has a lower probability than growth being at 
one or two percent. That the main reason is because the U.S. labor market is really strong. We're, we're expecting to see unemployment rate fall below three point five percent in the next couple of months. And you know, there's one point eight jobs open jobs opening for every unemployed person. So those openings are not going to evaporate in within you know. In, in 12 months, like that quickly. Uh, so I, on, on the other hand, if we look um, into deep into 2023, yeah, I can see growth slowing to, you know, 1% or below 1%. Um, so, yeah, but at the same time, I do see that inflation would be down from today's point. I don't, I think it's uh, very likely that inflation would be sticking around 4% next year. Um, and I don't think inflation of 4% and, and growth of around like 1% would be a major stagflation yeah. um, scenario. So, yeah. Below 1% growth potentially on the table. I mean, that's fascinating, Anna. Let me give you one last question here. Historically, if you go back, say, 50 years, recessions have come about every three to five years. In the last two decades, we've seen these eight, nine, 10 year long expansions. Do you think we're going to go back to the historical norm of a recession every three or five years in terms of the size of the economic cycle? That's a great question. Um, I think that the the answer to this is uh, uh, Powell himself has answered this, which is that price stability and maximum employment go hand in hand together. And the reason why in the last 25 years we have seen long expansion year cycles is because of price stability. So, Currently, inflation is so high that it's very hard to have a um, long expansion cycle uh, b- because the Fed itself becomes a risk with the you know right. deep Fed rate hike. So, to your question, I think um, it's more cha- more challenging than ever right now. Anna Wong, Chief U.S. Economist over here at Bloomberg Economics, always a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.